everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, just like that, three quick days in the quarterfinal round of the MLS's back tournament is already over. Yeah, and we had our last late game here on the East Coast, so we're done with those. (laughs) Happy about that. I'm sure the players are happy about it, too. The players are happy to no longer be dealing with the morning games that we had in the group stage. Now they don't have the late night games either. More normal sleeping patterns for everyone going forward. Yeah, and just, I think, more normalcy. Like, not even sleeping patterns. It's like, how do you get up for a game at 1030 at night if you're a player that it's just you know I, and those games have been great i'm not saying that they've been bad it's just it's not difficult. a normal thing yeah so i think it's good to be done with them well for our last episode of the quarterfinal round we've got minnesota united's 4-1 win over the san jose earthquakes and then that late game was the portland timbers 3-1 win over nycfc let's start with the earlier of those two games that's minnesota united's win jordan they came out in this game adrian heath came out and they extended their defensive shape against the San Jose Earthquakes. They kind of did what Orlando City did against LAFC yesterday. They matched the Earthquakes' style a little bit, not not with man marking, but they matched the, the defensive pressure a little bit and added intensity to the normal defensive shape and style that Adrian Heath likes to play. And I guess I wasn't super surprised by that, just saying from the, like, if you just compare last game to this game, right? In the last game, they're playing Columbus Crew, which... The crew is a team who wants the ball all the time, right? And San Jose is a little bit more of a, I don't know what to call them other than a wild card, right? They are good (laughs) in possession, but I think that they're a team that can kind of get after you in a, a few different ways and they can get after you on a quick break. So I think by Minnesota changing that, it did, it did change the intensity, especially at the beginning of the game. And, uh, I thought San Jose, did a good job of just keeping the ball early on. And yes, you could see how Minnesota was pulled out of that structure. But one of the things that was hard to me is how effective was Minnesota's pressure right at the beginning. I think it went war on San Jose because they couldn't figure out a way to get out of like their attacking part of their defensive third and their central third. So that area of the field into the higher phase on the field, like towards the attacking third. Because they couldn't do that, I think they started to get frustrated and that press from Minnesota wore them down a little bit early on. The specific area in that press that I do think gave San Jose some trouble, because it's it's Mm -hmm. not that San Jose didn't have possession. They had high possession early on in this game. But the way that Minnesota United were pressing the Earthquakes possession structure, I think was interesting. So Minnesota was in a 4-3-3 defensively. That's a little bit of a change from the 4-4-2 or the 4-4-2-4-3-3 hybrid that we kind of saw against the crew. To my eyes, at least, it looked like a 4-3-3 in this game with Ja'Cory Hayes and Gregush as the two central midfielders higher up in front of Ozzy Alonso from Minnesota United. Those two central midfielders would go and step to San Jose's double pivot of Jackson Yule and Judson. And that forced the Earthquakes to not play through that double pivot, not to play through Jackson Yule. Instead, they had to play through their center backs and those two guys, Alanis and Kashia, weren't nearly as comfortable on the ball as you'd like to have them compared to a Jackson Yule. The difference there in allowing the midfielders to be playmakers versus the center backs to be playmakers, that played a big role in how effective Minnesota United were able to be in limiting the Earthquakes attacks early on in this game. One of the things I 
was looking at is I thought they were man marking those two double pivots, which I guess you could kind of call it that. It was still a little bit more zonal. It's not like they were following them around the field, right? But they were very active in trying to get pressure to those two holding defensive midfielders for San Jose. And it it was frustrating. I think for Jackson Yule, he wasn't getting the ball enough, even when he would... Because you can play him the ball under pressure, right? And I think that the pressure was just enough so those two defensive players that you're talking about, the two center backs, were not willing to go out on a limb and play him the ball, even if he was under pressure, because he can control that, right? Yule has the ability to do that. But because they're not sturdy enough in their possession coming out through those center backs, it just made it difficult for San Jose. It did. And Minnesota United jump on the board, not early, but they get the goal from Robin Lode in the aftermath of a corner kick. Then they continue to press. They're up 1-0, but they don't pull off. They keep extending their defensive shape high up the field, and that press leads to the turnover from San Jose. That leads to, that's a lot of leads to, but it leads to Ja'Cory Hayes' goal that puts them up 2-0. Another element, though, of that second goal was Daniel Vega Mm. in goal for the San Jose Earthquakes. Not the best performance from Vega in goal, and that's putting it kindly. When you're playing for a team like the Earthquakes, you are probably not going to have a lot of clean sheets. Right. Because Matias Almeida has said, we are going to play an aggressive. We're going to try to be on the front foot. We're going to try to have an entertaining style of soccer. So you are going to give up goals. As a goalkeeper, you have to be willing to make the big saves. And I think, I think that early tangle that Vega got in just rattled him a little bit. And then he was cautious on everything else. And when you're cautious as a goalkeeper, you're not going to handle the ball, right? You're not going to punch it out. You're not going to kick it to where it's appropriate. You're going to give up rebounds. And that's what we saw a few times here from Vega. And I think it was just that accumulation of there is going to be pressure on you if you're playing in goal for this team and being knocked up from that early collision. I'm still learning about the goalkeeper position, but Vega did two major no-nos in this game, from what I know of that spot. The first one you just talked about, and that's deflecting shots back into danger. We see it on the second goal a little bit, although I'm not sure he could really see the ball as it comes in. I think he was being blocked, so I'm almost willing to give a pass for that. But there are other moments of danger where instead of palming the ball hard to the side and getting the ball as far away from the mouth of the goal as possible, he would he would sort of parry it back into the fray. That's no-no number one. No-no number two we saw on the third goal from Minnesota United. Amaria is coming up in the attacking half. He's dribbling forward from that space into the box. As Amaria comes into the box, Vega shifts over, and he comes to to block off the near post on his right side, Amaria's left side. Amaria takes a shot, and he still beats Vega at the near post. The one job at that point, as I understand it for a goalkeeper, is to block that shot hard to the near post, and he doesn't do that. That's two big issues if you're Daniel Vega in goal. You're absolutely right. I mean, for not knowing the goalkeeping position, you know enough to know that the <laughs> near post is that should be your space because you should as a goalkeeper, you should be cutting off the angle enough that if you're covering the near post and something gets shot wide, your angle of approach should be of which where the wide, the shot to the far post, you could even either one, get a touch on it, either a foot, an arm, anything, or two, you have cut off enough of the goal that that shot has to be a world beater to get around you. 
Vega has been highly inconsistent for the earthquakes in goal. And I, I like how you led this whole discussion off. This has got to be pretty much the worst job in Major League Soccer on the field, at least. One of the <laughs> worst jobs. You're under so much pressure all the time because of how the earthquakes play. But still, concerning inconsistencies that we're seeing pop up for Vega in goal for the earthquakes over not just this tournament, but in the past for the earthquakes as well. Yeah, no, thank you. One of the things, can I talk about one of the things that I felt like San Jose adjusted well to, even though I don't think it was super effective, but I think they understood that they had to do something about this in their defensive shape. Sure. Yeah, go for it. I felt like they knew that center backs are now going to dribble out and try to attack them. And I thought they did a good job, Erickson in particular, of leaving whoever he was marking and coming to that center back. The issue I have with that is when you're zonal defending, typically the pressure, if a center back's dribbling at you, the pressure is coming from where the goal is out towards the ball coming at you. Well, what was happening is if one of those midfielders, Erickson, or say it was Yule who was sliding over, they're they're sliding horizontally on the field. So instead of coming from the place that they want to block, not only the dribble, but the pass off from going closer towards the goal, they have to come from outside the goal, shifting sideways to try to cut that off. And so they were aware of it. They adjusted, but I think there's still a little bit more tweak that has to happen for them to be effective in that. This was not the best performance from the San Jose Earthquakes. We've seen some good ones from them in this tournament where their attacking talent gets going forward and they're moving the ball cleanly in possession. None of those things happened as much in this game. They get one goal off of a penalty kick from Erickson, but that's their only goal in this game. They took too many shots from outside the box. Defensively, they were pulled apart in transition and a little bit in possession from Minnesota United and Vega's inconsistencies, as we highlighted, hurt this team some points to look at going forward for Matias Almeida. A good tournament for the Earthquakes overall, I would say. Right. But there are clearly some things defensively and offensively that could be addressed and that we saw Minnesota United expose. Right. And that's how Minnesota United, you, we talked about their high press, but I thought they also did a good job when they were beat in that press of getting numbers behind the ball. The one time in the second half, probably the first 10, 15 minutes of the second half that they looked like they were under pressure from San Jose, it was because those two attacking midfielders that you were talking about in Hayes and Gregoosh were not getting behind the ball quick enough. So there was a bigger gap for Alonzo to have to move and defend. And once they changed that in the second half, they really did a good job of blocking up the passing lanes in the middle of the field and just making San Jose shoot from distance. I literally yelled in my apartment, stop shooting from outside the box. It's too much. It's too much. It's it doesn't make much. sense. Mathematically, it doesn't make sense. It wasn't working in this game either. Lots of issues there. And I'm I'm just generally confused by that attacking approach. But I, I've mentioned that before on this podcast and it hasn't mm-hmm. changed. Yeah. Okay. Last thing before we go to the next game. Um, I thought Dodson was great. Yes. I was because, about to say that before we moved on. So thank uh, you. Okay. Yeah. Because one of the things that San Jose like to do in transition is they like to utilize their wingers, especially Vaco, as that first pass to then play it centrally and then get out the other side or try to slip Andy Rio or connect through Andy Rios. So Dotson just read it. He almost baited them to play Vaco. And then right when Vaco would receive it, he either poke it away or be right on his backside, not allowing him to do anything. 
That is Minnesota United's 4-1 win over the San Jose Earthquakes. Minnesota will go on to play Orlando City in the semifinal game on August 6th. That's the second semifinal game of the semifinal round. The first game of that round will now be the Portland Timbers versus the Philadelphia Union after the Timbers 3-1 win over NYCFC. Where do you want to start on this one, Jordan? Do you want to start with NYCFC or the Timbers? Let's start with the the Timbers because I think that NYCFC, it's kind of a combo because I felt like they did look pretty good and high pressing and trying to turn Portland over early on in the game or for for bouts of possession, I would say. Like it kind of came in waves when they were high pressing, counter pressing, trying to make Portland uncomfortable as they built out. Um, one of the things that you'll notice when teams high press or they counter press is the ability for the opposing team to get out through a simple one, two. And I feel like Portland did a really good job of this. And I tried to count all of the times that they one twoed out of that pressure. Um, I didn't do a very good job of it because <laughs> I forgot I was doing it halfway through the game, <laughs> but it happened a lot. Um, I have at least five times in my memory where I can think that that happened because the players in the change of possession or in that high press are coming so hard at you at the ball. If you can find that pass through the seams, typically a pretty near pass and utilize that they're running at you against them because they don't know what you're going to do next. So they can't change directions as quickly as you can get after them and and move forward up the field. So that one, two is always on. And I think Portland did a good job of utilizing that to break some pressure. The guy so often for the Timbers who's helping break that pressure and break out of counter-pressing, which is a thing that we saw from NYCFC, especially against Toronto FC, is Sebastian Blanco. He was so good tonight. In my notes, I have, and this is sort of a a peeling back the curtain, Sebastian Blanco dash general awesomeness. (laughs) Because he was so effective and so good in this game. He scores the first goal for the Portland Timbers, which I want to talk about more in detail in just a second. But he's involved in the second two goals as well. He plays the ball right in at the edge of the box for Diego Valeria's goal. That's the one in the 65th minute that puts the Timbers up 2-1. to And then he plays Andy Polo into space on the left side on that rip of a goal from Polo Mm. outside the box, and that makes it 3-1. Blanco was involved in each and every goal, and again, especially that first one. Yeah, he was involved in everything. He was just, every time something good happened, I was like, that was Blanco. (laughs) He was so good. He really did so many things. Getting out of pressure, um, he he faked a couple of like long walls in New York's high pressure and would get players to jump, the defender to jump, trying to block, the long ball that he faked he was going to play, and then he would just dribble out of pressure. I was like, oh my gosh, he just made that defender look like a fool. There are so many similarities between soccer and basketball, and for some reason, Blanco reminds me of a point guard in basketball more than almost any other player in MLS. And and I, I noted that, especially on this first goal for the Portland Timbers. So Portland is in possession against NYCFC's defensive block. Blanco gets the ball in front of James Sands, in front of that double pivot for NYCFC, and then he dribbles to his left a little bit. He draws Sands in, he draws Tinnerholm in, he draws Mackay Steven in. Three guys into him. And by drawing those guys on the dribble, he creates space for a backdoor cut from Viafania. Then he plays Viafania in behind with the space that he has helped create. Then Viafania hits a low cross that ends up partially cleared by Cheneau. The ball gets right back to Blanco's feet in the box and he curls it to the far post for the equalizer. Blanco is the point guard. He draws defenders in, he creates space for his teammates and hits those passes and then hits the shot as well. 
I like the way that you called that a little backdoor cut because it is. Everybody's looking at the ball. And when Blanco has the ball, you have to be aware of what he can do on the ball, not only from that distance, trying to shoot or play make even, even to the far side of the, the box. Uh, so there's so many options that he has there. And that was just a well-orchestrated play by Portland. This game suited Portland. I think it suited them a lot better than the round of the 16 game against FC Cincinnati. In that game, they had to break down the low block. In this game, they had space oftentimes to go forward and transition into, and that allowed guys like Blanco, later a little bit of Valeri, to get on the ball and move the ball in possession and create chances for the Portland Timbers. When Portland have the ball and they have to break down a block or they have a long out of possession, they don't seem very comfortable, right? They don't seem like they have a lot of ideas or have a lot of uh, feeling like, okay, we're going to, we're going to figure out a way to pull this team apart. Like we see some teams do through passing and movement. They kind of, they don't operate that way. They like the space. They Mm -hmm. like the transition. They like, um, that we're going to get after it here in this, this, Two moments. Like, I, I noted how quickly that they can get after you. There was a moment when Portland, it was right in the 38th minute, and the ball starts with Clark all the way at their goalkeeper. He plays it to Chara, who has a player on each side of him. He is at the top of the box. He turns out a pressure beautifully, similar to that uh, possession that we saw Aronson do for the goal in the Philadelphia game a couple days ago. So he avoids the pressure on both sides, plays one pass to Blanco, who's 30 yards up the field, who plays Loria on the right wing, and he crosses it into Yimichara. This happened in 15 seconds. It was four passes. And this is what Portland loves to do. Like, let's let's just transition as quickly as we can, and we're going to score a goal. And that's what they did a couple times in this game. I almost think NYCFC would have been better off trying to bait the Timbers forward and force them to have possession and have cross after cross after cross in the box against a set defensive block. But that's not what we saw. Coming out of the gates in this game, it was NYCFC in possession. They were the ones trying to break down the Portland Timbers defensive block that sometimes looked like a 4-4-2, other times like a 5-3-2. But either way, it was NYCFC pushing forward and trying to break that down. I don't think they did a very good job of that, Jordan. Structurally, they were stagnant a lot. Guys just waiting in the box for crosses or getting impatient and taking shots from outside the box or trying to hit a home run pass. They didn't register a shot on target from open play until the 56th minute. Wow. 56th minute. That's insane. The the thing that I actually... So you said structurally you don't think they did a good job. I think in the first half they had the right pieces in play, but I think the second part of what you said was there wasn't enough movement and anticipation of what was going to be the next pass. So you were already moving to go assist that next pass or go help build off that next pass or create space for the the next play after that, right? It was always like, okay, the ball went here, now we'll move instead of thinking ahead. Because I what I saw is the – and I, what I liked is the New York City wingers – tucked inside and they were right on the outside of Chara and Williamson. So instead of being in the space, which uh, Cassianos actually occupied that channel in between the two holding midfielders right in front of the center back. So he was in that space and then the two wingers were tucked inside, allowing Matarita and Tinnerholm to get forward. So the numbers, I think, were in good areas. It just they 
there was no real feeling of fluidity of like how they were going to put those pieces together. And I'm not sure with the front four that NYCFC had on the field that that was ever going to be the case, or or yeah. at least not this early under Dyla. It's it's Castellanos up front, who I think is a very good player and even had good moments in this game. It's Matriza on the left, who holds onto the ball a little bit too long a lot of the time. In the middle, it's Jesus Medina, who's still not a very polished guy in the attack. And then on the right, it's Makai Steven, who I think of as more of an up-and-down player who can get a cross in, but isn't going to always provide you a lot in possession. Until NYCFC get Maxi Morales on the field, it's not a front four who can move and rotate quite well enough in the attack to create consistent chances. Well, they don't have their point guard. They don't have their point guard, Jordan. Because Morales is their point guard, and he draws attention just like Blanco draws attention. And so I think that it's not as if those pieces wouldn't work well if that one change was to happen, right? If Morales was in there, I think he brings enough attention that the others could potentially work well together. But you're right. It didn't, it didn't feel like it was going anywhere. And there's a whole separate conversation about NYCFC's roster construction and, and depth to be had here, but we're going to leave that for another day, <laughs> maybe even another podcast. That is a wrap on the quarterfinal round of the MLS's back tournament. Now, coming up, We've got a detailed semifinal preview show planned for Monday where we'll give you some specific things to watch for in the semifinal games between the Philadelphia Union and the Portland Timbers and Orlando City versus Minnesota United. So we'll be off on Sunday, back again on Monday, and then Wednesday and Thursday night, we will be back to our regularly scheduled match analysis review shows in the late night, early morning time frame. Yeah, you've been getting those early 8 p.m. games for me, so that's what... 5 p.m. for you. You've been getting the podcast out that night. People are listening to it that night of the game. Like you are, a, you think I'm a mind reader. You're a magician. Magician. <laughs> I think that's a musician and a magician mixed together. You just go with it. Do what you want, Joe. That's perfect. Take well, thank that you. And run thank you for it. that. Thank you for that endorsement, Jordan. I appreciate it, listeners. Thank Maybe you for listening. Stop talking tonight, right? <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. Jordan, thanks for walking through this quarterfinal round with me, and we will be back again at the start of this upcoming week to get you prepped for the semifinal round. Thanks, all.